I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Uh, Folks, we are in the second week of the legislative session here in South Dakota, and I am recording today in Pierre, South Dakota. It is uh, beautiful, just beautiful weather. I asked Siri last night, what's the weather going to be tomorrow? And she told me, I'm so sorry, it's going to be awful. It's only going to be 27 degrees. And I thought, 27, great. Siri doesn't know anything. So it's, it's, it's a warm, almost 30 degrees here today. And, um, and I'm staying busy in the thick of the legislative session. Uh, meanwhile, the podcast continues. The broadcast continues. If you're joining us on Real Presence, or if maybe you're joining via the podcast, welcome to the program. My guest today is Brandon McGinley. Uh, Brandon is a Catholic writer and speaker. He's written dozens of articles in places like First Things Magazine, Plow. I subscribe to both of those, The Lamp, The Catholic Herald. He's uh, also edited a number of articles, or excuse me, books for EWTN Publishing. His his work really centers around articulating a fully integrated view of Catholic living, um, which just resonates so deeply with what we try and focus on on this show. Um, and he's he really just tries to stay anchored in, in tradition, but also oriented towards the future. So today, we're going to be talking a little bit about a new book that he has out. It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends Upon True Religion, a book that he has co-authored with Dr. Scott Hahn, who who probably, I would guess, needs no introduction to this audience. Uh, Brandon, welcome to the program today. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's it's great to have you. And before we kind of launch into the book, which I am just really excited to talk about, would you would you mind maybe just um, telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm joining you today from Pittsburgh, and the weather's pretty similar here today. It's a little on the chillier side for us, but <laughs> the um, yeah, you know, I grew up here in Pittsburgh, um, like a lot of Pittsburgh families. You know, my my family's. Uh, uh, been in Pittsburgh for a while and uh, Catholic way back through the generations, um, but also like a lot of families um, in in Pittsburgh and around the country, you know, certainly of the folks of my generation, you know, by the time I was in middle and high school, I wasn't really terribly interested in the faith. It was uh, the kind of thing that, uh, you know, to be honest, when you're kind of going to CCD and you're getting a kind of, oh, uh, a watered down version of the faith that is, uh, you know, that's, that's supposed to be palatable to children. It just plays into the idea of the world around us that the faith is childish. And so, you know, by the time I went to college, I was uh, practicing really sporadically at, at most. And, um, and I had the opposite experience that a lot of people have, which is I returned to the sacraments in college. You know, there was a wonderful uh, Catholic chaplaincy at my university, and I was surrounded by people my own age who clearly took it seriously. There was a beautiful liturgy there. And uh, and so for me, then, college is actually the the, the place where, where, where kind of things turn around in a positive direction <laughs> with regard to the faith. And... Uh, and so I ended up, you know, meeting my wife at college, and uh, now we're back here in Pittsburgh, my hometown. We have four kids, a fifth on the way any day now. <laughs> hey, congratulations. And, yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, um, you know, that's that's the, the, the Cliff Notes version of, uh, of my story. And if I understand correctly, you had some solid uh, role models uh, at college, too, in terms of um, – 
do I remember right that you studied under Professor Robert George? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So, you know, my wife and I met at Princeton and, uh, you know, a lot of the culture there, the, the good part of the culture there uh, is there in large part because of Professor George and the kind of community of scholars that he has built up around him, both in terms of faculty members, but also in terms of the students. And so, um, you know, I wasn't looking for anything like that when I went to Princeton. I was just, you know, felt incredibly, you know, fortunate to get into the university and was just going to kind of do my thing. But, you know, providentially, I not only did I start to take his classes, but I met other people who were, uh, who lived near me or freshmen with me who were serious about the faith. And so, I kind of was brought into this subculture at the university that was um, incredibly fruitful for me. Well, that's beautiful. And, you know, praise God that he's got a plan for us and uh, yeah. he just gives us what we need it at every moment in time. Yeah. So let's, let's turn to the book, Brandon. Um, it is right and just uh, why the future of civilization depends on true religion. It's a, it's a striking title. The, the words it is right and just, of course, resonate with Catholics as, as, um, as being words that are in our liturgy. Do you mind maybe just sketching out for us um, kind of what's the thesis of the book and what are some of the sure. features of the argumentation that supports, uh, sure. supports the thesis? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, 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 the thing that's really foundational is coming to understand the traditional view. And by traditional, I don't mean like antiquated. I mean a view of what religion is that goes right back to the very beginning of the church. Um, and that goes through to the present day. You find it in the catechism. It's not something that was, it's not something that sometimes when we say traditional, we mean, oh, this is something that was kind of, you know, a boutique thing back in the day and that has been kind of, you know, that it's just no longer really relevant. No, in this case, we're talking about something that is, that is, has a 2000 year history. The words it and right, it is right and just uh, are attested or some of the earliest attested language in the mass, you, you can find it way back in, I think, the second or third century. And so this idea that giving um, worship to God, giving adoration to God, giving love to God is, um, is, an, is an aspect of justice. There's that word right there, just, and that religion is an aspect of justice, that it's something that we owe to God in the same way that justice among human beings involves giving to each what he is due. Religion the worship, the sacrifice, um, both in terms, of course, of the sacrifice of the mass, but also just the sacrifice of our lives and sacrificing every moment um, uh, to for, for the glory of God. This is um, this idea that this is an aspect of justice is, this is like I said, ancient and and even has has roots before the church in the sense of what um, natural religion was considered before that, and so. Once you come to understand religion, not as a merely sociological phenomenon where there are several different religions, uh, each of which have something of a claim on truth, and you can kind of just say, well, there's Catholicism, and there's Buddhism, and there's Taoism, and there's all you can do comparative religion. These things all share something of a supernatural outlook on life, but in the church's understanding, religion is not just any sort of supernatural belief. Religion is a duty that we owe in justice to God. And so therefore we can say, as in the title, how the future of civilization depends on true religion, we can discern between those religions, of course, that are fulfilling the, our duty in justice and those that are not. 
And if I understand the features of justice too, for, for those of us that are thinking about justice, you know, basic definition, it's rendering to another uh, his or her due, that sometimes we, we, we think of justice maybe in strictly legal terms where hey, we're in a contract, so I owe you this or that, I'm checking out at the grocery store, so I owe money, or even under you know, criminal law, um, somebody has harmed another person, so now there's a debt to be paid against that person or against the society as a whole. Mm-hmm. But we can even think of like hierarchies of justice where yes. within our family, I, you know, that's the, it's a commandment, honor your father and mother, or even yes. within a country, sort of patriotism being a daughter virtue of piety. Yeah, so what, exactly. if I understand what you're saying about religion, we should understand religion as like, right at the top of this hierarchy of, yes. of things to which we have a duty in justice. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and so many things depend on that. You know, uh, the, the two points I'll make on this is, you know, first of all, when we think in Catholic social teaching of the, the types of justice uh, in the temporal realm, um, we think of distributive justice where we're talking about the preferential options for the poor, the universal destination of goods, making sure that every person has what they need to live becomingly, as I believe Leo the 13th put it. It may have been one of the piouses. I forget which of the social, social encyclicals. Um, uh, and on the, other hand, on the other hand, as you said, we're thinking of things like criminal justice or, or um, civil justice in the courts, commutative justice. And that gets to that idea of, of uh, when someone is wronged, making sure that that wrong is done, is, is righted as far as is possible. The, the type of justice that we're thinking about in terms of the virtue of religion is, um, is what you might call transcendent justice. Mm. We can never fully repay the gift of love, the gift of sacrifice, the gift of our very existence that is given to us by God. And yet we can do as much as we can as far as our limited human means allow us to. And so that's where you get to the idea of worship, of sacrifice, uh, every everything that has ever been called a religion involves some aspect of sacrifice, certainly in, in, the, in the, the proper understanding of what religion is. And so... Um, and so, you know, you have this idea then that there's this, there's there's the horizontal axis of justice, which is the 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 the, uh, the justice that we owe our fellow men, both in terms of distributive and commutative, but that that transcendent, you could think of the vertical axis. And then you get this idea of kind of cruciform justice. Yes. We have the vertical axis, the horizontal axis, and then you can extend the analogy further, and say that the horizontal. As in, a, as in a cross, the horizontal, that crossbar depends on the vertical for its support. And so if, you, if we, as we as a civilization are, are failing in uh, the virtue of religion, because another point of the book, of course, is that this is a virtue, it's not just an individual virtue, but a corporate virtue, one that we share as families, as neighborhoods, and as nations. If we're failing in that vertical axis, it's very hard to imagine how we will get that horizontal axis right. Well, and I want to get to, to the future and why so much depends upon this, but, but to briefly kind of um, step back to something you kind of alluded to when you said natural religion is, is kind of the thesis here. What, what you're talking about, if I understand, it's not a new idea, that it's actually been around the Greeks and the Romans, Seneca and Cicero, actually thought, thought in the same way about the foundations of of civilization resting upon justice yeah. in our religious duties. And, and, and you know, we think we, we have, there's lots of, justice is a big word today. And in 
and I'm glad in many respects that it's coming back as something we talk about and aren't afraid to talk about. But at the same time, justice, um, whether we're talking about the horizontal or the vertical, that the justice is the virtue or virtue of religion as an aspect of justice, is intrinsically related to truth. And so that's when you go back to the, to the pre-Christian Romans and these guys like Cicero, like you mentioned, who, who are using the word religio and aren't necessarily strictly referring to the Roman pantheon of gods. They're referring to the duties that you owe to Roman society, to the state. Um, they're talking about the duties that you owe to truth. Um, because if you are, it, you can you can feel like you're 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 doing everything right. You feel like you're 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 fulfilling the duties as you see them. But if you're detached from truth, if you're fulfilling duties based on something that's false, like say for instance, hypothetically, a secular view of what <laughs> of, of what uh, of what of what human life and human civilization is all about. Then, um, then you still could be going the wrong direction, and so um, and so you know it's important to remember then that in the same way that the ancients recognized that our duties to fulfill to fulfill our duties rightly, they must be based in what is true about the human person, about our relationship with our families and our societies. Um, in the same respect, then today, uh, having revelation, having the fullness of the truth in um, in scripture and through the church. Um, our fulfillment of our duties and religion then depends on, of course, the, the, the true religion, the true, the truth of, uh, the truth of revelation, the truth that we, um, that we rely on, uh, for our, for our worship. And that can feel, um, let's just be honest, that can feel impolite to even say yeah. out loud because yeah. we, we all recognize that American society is pluralistic in many mm-hmm. ways, including uh, its religious features. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels impolite because we almost feel like religion is private, you know, and that's, right. not, what, Absolutely. that's not what the church is teaching us. And that's not your argument, but that's, that's kind of the air that we're breathing. You've got a Absolutely. couple of chapters in the book titled, um, Lib- one titled liberal societies are necessarily secular. And then the next chapter is secularism is idolatry. What is, what do you mean by that? What can you unpack those a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we've, 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 over the course of our conversation here, tried to reorient the idea of what we mean by the word religion as a virtue, as, uh, as a virtue that is intrinsically related to justice. The other aspect of that then is that everybody organizes their life around some concept of what they think is true. Even the most thoroughgoing atheist or relativist or secularist or whatever has some idea of what they think a good life looks like Mm. and then tries to live that out. Um, And they may or may not have strong views about imposing that view on others. But at the end of the day, uh, every, every law, every, um, every act of, of state power, uh, and in some sense, every decision that we make as human beings is based on some idea of what we think is good for us and for others. Um, and so if we see then, if we can you, you go back to that natural view of religion, you can see religion um, as a universal, as something that is inescapable, because we all organize our life around uh, around some idea of what we think is true, and we all believe we have duties to what is, to what is true. Um, and then the question is, what is true? <laughs> and, uh, and in a civilization like ours that has imbibed the secularism, um, the result is not that people stop organizing their lives around what they think is true. 
uh, or stop uh, performing duties to the truth. They're just performing duties to uh, to other deities. Um, and so not necessarily deities that we name in the sense of the old Roman pantheon, but deities like pleasure and profit and power. Um, and these, uh, and so at the end of the day, then, uh, one of the main points we make in the book is that uh, everybody worships something. Everybody organizes their life. Everybody makes sacrifices for something. Even if we don't think of it in the sense of certainly like the sacrifice of the mass or worship in the sense of prayer, um, everybody has something on the altar uh, that they will sacrifice other aspects of their life to placate. So, so you know, we've got, let's see, about 10 minutes here remaining. And I yeah. think one of the things that's just striking in the title of the book, it just grabs you, is that the future of civilization, you're arguing, depends upon true religion. Help us, help us understand that, why this is like the path yeah. that we need to be focused on. Otherwise, yeah. you know, civilization itself hangs in the balance. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if, uh, if we're all... If we're all, if we all worship something, if we all are performing some sort of religious duties to some, to some idea of truth and to some, into some, either the true God or um, some replacement idols, you have to remember also that the idols that secularism offers us, uh, like the ones I mentioned before, and, 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 you know, you only have to look for, for a split second at our politics right now to see how politics has become a kind of idol, uh, where our identities are completely bound up in politics and that raises the stakes to a level that is um, unsustainable. Um, except the thing is that, you know, our, our show here is called Faith in Politics. Politics is a, politics is a huge deal. Politics is about the organization of our societies. It's, and everything that has to do with the organization of human societies is, is, is political. Um, and if you rule out from the beginning the possibility that the Holy Spirit is interested and involved in this process, that grace can elevate the possibilities of what we can do, not just as individuals, but as families and ultimately as societies and civilizations, that you have ruled out the only force that can keep us together in a sustainable way that can mm -hmm. allow us to share life without succumbing to envy and jealousy and injustice and greed. And so from beginning at the highest level of saying the organization of our society politically depends on us having a relationship, not just individually, but corporately with the source of all goodness, with the source of all peace, with the source of all love. We can muddle around a little bit without that or by ignoring it or just kind of, you know, or, uh, um, or being indifferent to it for a while. And frankly, the United States has done a pretty good job of that compared to other, other nations who have dabbled in this kind of secularism. But, um, but at the end of the day, uh, if, if, this, if society, again, not just in the sense of each individual, but in the sense of, of us as, as, as a society, as a corporate body, um, don't have some grounding in truth, then we will find ourselves tearing ourselves apart while we're all pursuing all these different idols and all these different, uh, and all these different um, um, uh, 
uh, forms or, or, or concepts of justice that, um, that turn out to be mutually exclusive. Now, it's a huge statement to make. It's a huge statement to make, and it's one that's easy to make from here in my attic slash office in Pittsburgh. It's a lot more difficult to play out in real life. But the point of the book isn't at this point to say, to give us a roadmap for how you end up with a Catholic civilization in America. Yeah. The point is to help readers get to the very first stage in the process of creating something new, which is realizing the deficit that we're living under and wanting something better. Well, and and so, yeah, no, go ahead. If, sorry to cut you yeah, off. Yeah. So, so, so that's the, so that for me, you know, is the, uh, is, is, is if the book can open the eyes of readers to, to the desire for a, for a civilization that yes, seems implausible right now. Um, but the first step is even realizing that it's something we should want. <laughs> right. One of the things that scripture uh, admonishes us to do that, that can help us like see truth is to just be attentive to the signs of the times. Yeah. You know, and I don't want to be, you know, a negative Nelly and just sort of dwell, do this navel gazing where, you know, the world is just sort of swirling around the drain. It, it's much better to focus on like heaven, but at the same time, we are told, you know, observe the signs of the times. Do you, do you see signs of the times that can really help us see the urgency of, of reorienting ourselves on the truth of religion and why it's important to all of civilization? I, um, I can be kind of grim about the near and middle term future of our civilization. And, uh, and, and I think, reasonably so i think it's quite rational to be pessimistic in the in the near and medium term maybe even the long term but at the same time um precisely the fact that things are looking more unstable than they have in a long time and that's saying something given even the last you know several years that even now it feels like it's even more unstable certainly we're you know still dealing with a pandemic and you know we have an inauguration tomorrow and, and, and just things are changing in ways that are extremely destabilizing and very unsettling. Um, and, I'm, and just to be clear, I'm not just referring to any to, to the election or to political parties. I'm talking in the broadest possible focus here. Um, and, uh, and, and so um, the, uh, uh, but at the same time, this unsettlement this, that we're experiencing and that everybody's experiencing is an opportunity for people to recognize that the big hole that we have in the middle of our society, the, the, the hole of God, the hole of the church, the hole of religion. And for a lot of people, it would be really hard to turn to that right now because we're so used to this kind of grim darkness that the light of Christ will look frightening. But at the same time, for a lot more people than I think in the recent past, it was a lot more settled and a lot more decadent, frankly, um, the contrast will be even starker. And I think in a good way. Hmm. You know, it kind of reminds me too of, uh, I think Benedict XVI used the term eclipse. God has been eclipsed. Mm. And it, yeah. if I recall right, you in the, in the book, you discuss a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, is that right? Yeah. And, yeah. and he, yeah. you mind sharing with the listeners just a little bit about who he was and, and his thoughts on sort of the absence of God and where we are. Yeah. And he was even writing yeah. you know, 40 years ago longer 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, when you think about Solzhenitsyn, you know, you you think, well, you know, he's writing out of the Soviet Union, this kind of enforced atheism. So how relevant is that today? One of the points of the book is that secularism, even in a quote unquote liberal and free society, can act in, in, a, way, in a way just as um, just as oppressively as the kind of enforced atheism. And so, you know, Solzhenitsyn says we have forgotten God and and who could say that, you know, yes, he's talking about, yes, he's talking about the Soviet Union, he's talking about the Eastern Bloc, but who could say that he's not also speaking to us today? And when you've forgotten God, when you've forgotten that eternal view, when you've forgotten that heavenly view and everything becomes about the here and now and the stakes, the stakes of politics are high. Politics has to do not just with the distri- distribution of power and goods and so on, but also with souls. But it's odd. But the paradox is that whenever you remove the soul, whenever you remove the question of the eternal, and our focus is so much on right now in the here and now, the stakes actually feel even higher. Um, and whenever you take that eternal view, um, you know, the, the stakes can be, uh, we, we can, I, I think, you know, it's possible actually to live together in a more uh, peaceful way when you have the sense that there's, there's more to life than just politics. Transcendent justice, I yes, think, as you put it exactly. earlier. There's a there transcendence it yeah. to it. So we've got, uh, we've got two or three minutes here remaining. Can we, maybe just as we wind down, what are some really practical takeaways for our listeners who are, you know, um, maybe they'll just listen to this podcast. Maybe people will pick up the book and read it. But like, what effect should it have on my life? Like, what is it going to, sure, sure. How, how is it going to change me when in five minutes I walk back over in, into that Capitol building and get back to work? Sure, sure, absolutely. You know, you know, I think that uh, I think that the one of the things that I want people to, to to come away with, and I know Dr. Han does as well, is is just being given the confidence to realize um, that uh, that the, the Catholic faith is a is a twenty four seven endeavor. It's mm-hmm. not. Uh, it's something that is meant to to organize our entire our entire lives, and so. Um, we have just been so well catechized by our liberal secular civilization that the faith is something that is, is proper in two places, within the four walls of the church and inside our own heads. We can mm. pray privately. We may pray publicly, but only in the church. And other than that, and, and frankly, my view at least is that even in families, we have been catechized to believe that the family is a quasi-secular space, where it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about Jesus or even to pray with our children because, oh, we're indoctrinating them or something like that. If we're going to take even some small step towards building the kind of civilization that is actually sustainable, that's actually founded on truth, actually founded on Jesus Christ, we have to begin by founding our families on uh, on that truth um, and unapologetically praying and um, and serving others and and thinking of the home as a kind of base community for going out into the world as Christians, not as good seculars who are Catholics, you know, on the side. Um, and so for me, that's the first step saying, you know, orienting our own minds and then orienting that first community over which we have power, over which we have some authority as parents, in my case, uh, to, to, the, the, to the true religion. And, you know, so you start at home. And the same could be said for pastors who are, you know, shepherding Absolutely. the flock and, yep. Absolutely. You can get that horizontal axis. Yes, you know, I speak in broad terms because I want to emphasize it's a social matter, but... Uh, it's also a social matter in the sense of the family is, to use the title of another of Dr. Hans' recent books, The First Society. Yes. And so, um, so, great and so yeah, get, yeah get, that, get that horizontal axis of justice right in your families, and that also serves to, to 
to get justice right in the home. Well, wonderful. I've really enjoyed this, this conversation, Brandon. Thank you for joining us on the show. Yes, thank you. And thank you, dear listeners, as always, for tuning in. Uh, it's the legislative session. If, if you missed that earlier, reach out, go to sdcatholicconference.org and you can sign up for our email list. Or we've got a new Instagram page. If you want to follow some of the news there, it's at SD Catholic Conference. And uh, we'll see you next time.